we take this morning to look at, at something that I remember as a child confused me a little bit. Now, maybe it didn't confuse you. Maybe you're smarter than me in that sense, but I just wondered why when I read this passage, and again, I'll read verse 20 to 24, where it says this, as he, that's Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took his wife. Now, if you didn't pick up on what confused me, it was that it says to us in verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus. And then in verse 23, it said, they shall call his name Emmanuel. And so the question in my childhood mind was, what's his name? <laughs> is it Jesus or is it Emmanuel? Which is his name? And, and the reality is, in my youth and in my modern American Western upbringing, name is what we call somebody, which may or not have any real reference to who they are or what they will become. You know, uh, uh, and, and all of our names oftentimes will have some kind of significance. Abram went from Abram to Abraham because he would be the father of many nations. Uh, a son was called Esau or Edom because he came out red colored. And so some, something was there. When, it, when the scriptures speak of this shall be his name, today we're going to focus on the significance of these names, Jesus Emmanuel. And the reason we're going to do that is because it's not just what you're going to call him so you know how to end your prayers. Which is generally how we end our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. But to get a, a broader sense of who is this Jesus, what is this Jesus, and why was this name given to him? Now, to do that, we're going to do a little bit of an Old Testament study. Because the name that we've come to know as Jesus in English is Jesus in the Greek is Yeshua or Yehoshua in the Hebrew. So you're going to go back with me to the first place in the scripture where we come across this name, Yehoshua. And that is in Numbers chapter 13, verse 8. I know many of you have already turned there, knowing in advance that's the verse I was going to refer to. And you're, you're going to actually know this one because it is the man who is deemed the assistant of Moses. The one who after Moses passes is going to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. 
But maybe little did you know, as you actually read verse 8, it's giving the history of these individuals, and it says, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. And some of you are thinking, uh, excuse me? Did you mispronounce that? Did you suddenly sneeze in the middle of trying to say Joshua? No, I did not. It is Hosea. But listen to what, go with me now to verse 16, if you would. These were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua or Joshua. And so right here, you get this sense, the name of this individual that you've always known as Joshua was originally Hosea, and then it was changed to Jehoshea, which actually the King James does say there. And still, even as I say that, you're kind of thinking, so what? I mean, what's the significance to that? Because I, I, maybe you know neither what is the meaning of Hosea or the meaning of Joshua, Jehoshea, right? So what does it mean? Let me help you out because there's significance in it. The, the original name that he had would have been like calling him Savior. That would have been his name. Now, we have people who have approximate names like that today. Maybe we call him Xavier, Xavier. We might throw a Z on the front of that. Um, people will bear that name, Savior. Or if you want to just be a little more literal, it would say, he saves. And I think it's pretty interesting and deeply meaningful that this name that was given to him by his parents... Moses felt it was absolutely necessary to bring an important corrective. And the corrective that he brought was to take his name and proceed it with that which references God, the Lord, Yahweh. Whenever, when, whenever you see certain words like Elihu, Eli, Eli, that, that is from God. That when you see certain words like Jehovah, Yahweh, that, that, that for Lord, that is putting that name on the front. Jehoshaphat, names such as this. And so instead of now calling him Savior or he saves, it was changed by Moses that now his name will be God saves. God is Savior. God is salvation. That's an important corrective, isn't it? Because uh, he would have a uniquely instrumental role, but the idea is going to be much further. Instead of he saves, it is God who saves. And so now listen, as we're coming now towards the end of the life of Moses... Now, in a lot of the events leading through the life of Moses, and maybe next time you, you read through this, you'll see that there are times that many of the children of Israel are excluded. Even when Moses went up to the mountain in order to receive the law, the children of Israel were excluded. And there was a, a further place that Moses went, but there 
partially up the mountain with him, waiting for him, was his assistant, Joshua. And so when they came, when he came down, they came down together. Towards the end of the life of Moses, he says these words in Deuteronomy 18 that are very important. In verse 15 and following, he says these words to the children of Israel. Deuteronomy 18, 15 and following. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is him you shall listen to. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Oreb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear the voice of the Lord or my God or see the great fire anymore lest I die. And let the Lord... And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to the words that, I shall, that he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. So initially there, it's quite clear. Moses recognizes he is soon to die. And he is announcing to the people that God is going to raise one up in his place. To take his place. Go with me as well to Numbers chapter 27. If not, you can simply listen as I am reading. Numbers 27 verse 12. The Lord says to Moses, go up into this mountain, Abiram, and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people. Now, just a hint there for, for those of us not familiar with Hebrew figures of speech. Gathered to your people is not a party. Gathered to your people means you're going to die like all of your ancestors. And you're going to be buried like all of your ancestors. So it's a, it's a very sweet way of saying, you're going to go up there, see the land, and you're going to die there. You don't get to go into the land because he had rebelled. And, and then in verse 15, it says, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep without a shepherd. What is the concern Moses has? Someone rise up in my place like me on behalf of the Lord to lead this people to be a shepherd to them, to speak God's word to them. Verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hands on him. Verse 20 says this, you shall invest him with some of your authority. Now, just a hint here, the word some isn't in the original languages. I think people were just uncomfortable with the idea that it might get fully passed on uh, uh, from Moses to Joshua, and because there will be a hint later that Joshua wasn't quite Moses, 
but it, it simply says, you shall invest him with your authority or your honor that all of the congregation of the people Israel may obey. And he shall stand before the priests who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. And at his word, they shall go out. And at his word, they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel, the whole congregation. Moses did, verse 22, uh, as the Lord commanded him, he took Joshua, made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation. He laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. Stay with me. Deuteronomy 34 tells us, Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. Chapter 34, verse 5 and 6. According to the word of the Lord, and he was buried in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. And no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Go with me now to Joshua. Chapter 1. We'll start round about verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua. So again, I ask you, who was the Lord speaking to before? Moses. And Moses was very interested that there should be someone after him who leads them out, who brings them in, that the Lord gives the commands to the people through him and that he would be a shepherd to the people. It says, the Lord says to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving you. Go down with me now to verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses. So I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Comfort word, right? Even if you were to continue on uh, uh, down with me, maybe all the way down to verse 9, still in the, uh, uh, let's go down to verse 13. Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you the land. So here is, here is the, the one. After Moses is gone, who's rising up in his place? Joshua. He's taking that position as the Lord was with Moses. Now Joshua, the Lord is with Joshua. And Joshua is to lead them out, bring them in, be a shepherd to the people, and lead them into rest. Isn't he? And it goes on to say this in verse 15, that he will continue to lead them in valor. Verse 15, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he gives to you. And so on down to verse 16. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things. So we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you. As he was with Moses. And so now there's a couple things that I want us to get. So in the temporal, temporary, short term history 
of Moses' passings and his proclamations, it would seem that the fulfillment of God's promises, as well as the fulfillment of Moses' prophecy, has been fulfilled in Joshua. Because now the Lord is speaking to him. Now he is commanding the people, as the Lord was with Moses, so the Lord is with him. He is to be the shepherd to the people. He is to lead them into rest. But I do want you to notice this. To me, there's laced in there a little bit of sad and tragic. I, I want to call it humor, but it's not funny. They did say this, just as we obeyed Moses in all things. What? Now, if we've read, were they obedient to Moses? No, we know the constant grumblings and grumblings. And then he tells them after the spies come back, let us go up and take the land. Did they go at that point? No, if you look, you know, it's shocking. And, and sometimes I look at that and think, what is wrong with you? Do you not realize how disobedient you were? I mean, that's the worst promise that you could make to poor Joshua. We're going to obey you just like we obeyed Moses. Ah! But the sad reality in their confused, deceived, and depraved minds, they actually deceived themselves into thinking, we obeyed him. We did what we want. Now, I will say this to a degree. The ones who are saying this are the children that have grown up in the wilderness, not necessarily the parents who are more overtly disobedient time and time again. But, um, yeah, not, not like with Moses. But, but look, people might think, again, reading through in the history, promise fulfillment. Moses, Joshua. Joshua would be the one who gives them rest, delivers them the inheritance, indeed finishes the purpose of the exodus, demonstrating that God is the one who saves. And that none could stand before him that he would emerge victorious as an instrument of God's delivering hand. But that's not the end. And there was a hint there. In Deuteronomy 34.10. Just a little hint woven in there. It says this. There has not arisen. A prophet in Israel. Like Moses. Whom the Lord knew face to face. So though it seemed like. Joshua was the man that he stepped right in to where Moses was and on equal footing and in fulfillment, he got it done. But the scriptures indicate to us, though there is a temporal sense in which he did, there was still something a little deficient in this Joshua, in this instrument. I might even be even clearer. There was also something deficient in Moses, the instrument. So now listen. As I turn our attention, as we move towards the New Testament. The scripture tells us this. Um, 
in John 6, remember, Moses had been a privileged to, to some degree to see God. Now, it says face to face. It's, it, it, that is a figure of speech that speaks of, of his proximity and his closeness. But we know that when Moses was pleading with God in Moses 32 and around there, God says, Moses says to God, what? Show me your glory. And what does God do? He hides him in the cleft of the rock. He puts his hand over him. Because no one can see God in the full display of his radiant glory and splendor and live. And so God covered him, passed by him, pronouncing those words of his sovereignty, his power, his grace, and his mercy. And then allowed Moses to catch a little glimpse of that glory from the backside. No one had, so Moses, more than any other, had seen God, experienced the presence of God, hence the term face to face. But had he seen God in the absolute full display? But listen as I read John chapter 6, verse 45 and following. It is written in the prophets... And they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That's why I want to make it very clear. We preach the gospel, don't we? We share it with others. Not everyone who hears and learns from me comes to the Father. Not everyone who hears and learns from you comes to the Father. But when God, by his divine power, is pleased, pleased through our proclamation, through the instrumentality of the Spirit, that God causes it to be heard and learned, indeed taught by God, they come. They all come. Everyone who has Heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father. So again, this is a helpful hint as well. For those of you who might roam around someday and somebody tells you. I died and went to heaven. And I saw God. You know, I had to make a bizarre voice because that's how foolish that statement is. Not that Anyone has seen the Father, what? Except he that is from God. And you know who it's talking about in John 6? Jesus Christ, his son. Uh, he who is from God. He has seen the Father. 1 John 4.12 says these words. See if you can figure out the mystic language. No one has ever seen God. Did you figure it out? No one has ever seen God. So again, somebody says, but I did. I died for 34 minutes and uh, blah, blah, blue, blue, whatever. I, you know, I had a dream. I had a vision. I stubbed my toe. Whatever it is, you didn't. The scriptures are exceedingly clear. Let me just read that again. No one has ever 
seen God. Yeah. First uh, Timothy 6.16, speaking of God, says, Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. So listen, when someone says, well, at that time, nobody had seen him. But now, I did. Well, no one has ever seen or can see. So don't, don't, look, test the spirits because they are not all of God. And do not be so easily deceived. But then look what it says in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. And then it says these strange words. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Huh? The what? The only God who's at the Father's side has made him known. How do we put all these pieces together? No one has seen God. But the only God who happens to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus, who is at the Father's right hand, who himself is God, has seen God, and he makes God known. That's unique, isn't it? So, Moses, little glimpsey. Joshua, a little bit less than that. Jesus, all in absolute all. And so that so when we take this up, listen to what it, listen to what the scriptures now say. If you were to go forward to Hebrews chapter four, as you're reading the end of Hebrews chapter three and four, it's telling the children of Israel how uh, they they were brought through the wilderness, how God bore with them for forty years in the wilderness, and then it says these words in Hebrews chapter four verse eight. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Now, sadly here, the King James has, has put the, word, the name Jesus there. But we can understand that because the name Jesus and the name Joshua are exactly the same name. In the New Testament, whenever you see the name Joshua, it is Yesu. But the translators have decided when they were 100% sure it was, Je it was Joshua of the Old Testament. They translated it Joshua. And at other times translated it Jesus. Would that they would have been a little more attentive here. Because this is the Joshua who was, remember we had read, was to lead them into their rest. But then the Hebrews tells us he did not. Lead them into their rest. They did not enter their, the rest. Because of disobedience. And so there was a, there was a Joseph. There was a, a God's savior. Who did not finish the work. Who did not bring them to rest. That's why there still awaited another day. Indeed another one. And if you were to read... And I encourage you to, and you can note this down if you want. 
Acts chapter 3, verse 22, Acts 3, 22, and Acts 7, 37. Those two passages refer back to the prophecy that Moses makes that God will raise up a prophet like me after me. Him you should listen to. And if you don't listen to him, it will be required of you by your life. And who is it referring to in Acts chapter 3.22 and Acts 7.37? Jesus. Indeed, I might say the greater Joshua. The true Joshua. One was was a forerunner who fell short. He is the fullness who accomplished all the Father gave him to do. That's why it says this in Hebrews 4.14. So then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Back, back in chapter 4, verse 1 to 3, it said, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united to it by faith. So we we're recognizing what? All of these glorious events in God bringing about a, a miraculous exodus of freedom from slavery. Uh, of bringing them into a promised inheritance at his hand. And the receiving of rest. Now, now listen, there was a time where the, they had conquered much of the lands. And the scriptures do say, in a sense, they had rest on all sides. But then it reminds us that wasn't the full rest that was required. There was more. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 3 and following says this. For Jesus has been counted more or counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Listen. Their hope was what? That Joshua might match up to Moses. That as he was with you, so it will be. They were hoping that he might attain to Moses. Because in the mind of the Jews, Moses was the pinnacle. What are the scriptures laying out here? Jesus exceeded Moses. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth through the Lord Jesus Christ. A far greater glory. It says, uh, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone and the builder of all things is God. Here's the reason why Jesus has more glory than Moses. He made Moses. And all of the glory and all of the accomplishment that Moses ever accomplished was by the enabling grace of God in Christ. Verse 5. 
Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house. Oh, Moses was faithful in God's house. But Jesus is faithful over God's house. Do you see the difference? Oh, it's glorious. Christ is faithful as a son. And we are his house if we hold fast. Remember what it says. So again, when we see this, he will be called Jesus. He will be called the God who saves. Why will he be called that? For he will save his people from their sins. And just just a, a brief thought on that. First of all, I don't want you to miss this notion. He's going to save them. Not merely from the devil. Not merely from eternal punishment. He's going to save them from their sins. Which is all of us. So listen, if somebody says, well, I'm saved by Jesus, but I wasn't a sinner. That's a problem. Because he came to save sinners. And so if you're not a sinner, you're not being saved. He came to seek and to save the lost. If you think you were never lost... You may never be found. Listen, listen, I want, I want us to, to get this, this sense. Um, in Romans 5, 9, it says this. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, well, I read that verse for a very specific reason. We're saved by him. We're saved by Christ. He saves us, right? From the wrath of God. Sometimes we, we, we remove God from eternal punishment. And we have a mind of people being sent to the lake of fire, going to hell. And we imagine that somehow the devil is the God of hell. And, and he, he's kind of the, the king and lord of hell. And even people develop crazy notions that he kind of instructs all the demons on how they can go about torturing the souls of the of the unbelievers for all eternity you, you've heard that nonsense right no the devil himself all of the demons with him the beast and the false prophet they are all languishing in eternity under the wrath of god they have no rain in the lake of fire. They are miserable in eternal torment and agony. You know, this, this idea, this little fellow with a red trident sitting on a red throne with flames all around him. Not happening. The devil is utterly undone by the wrath of God. And understand this, we also were it not for God's mercy, would be undone by the wrath of God. God's wrath, when it meets with sinners, is our eternal undoing and agony. 
He saved us from the wrath of God. He is the Savior. Oh, when, when, we, when we understand that from their sins, a few verses for the, for the confused. Ephesians 7.20, I mean, Ecclesiastes 7.20 says this. Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. Did you get that? So how many would that make who are righteous and never sin? Well, let's, let's see how it's restated for us as you move forward to Romans 3, 10. Right after saying in verse 9, Jews and Greeks all are under sin. It says there is none righteous. No, not. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So, so when somebody comes along into that and says, I didn't turn aside. And they say, I'm worthy. I'm worth it. When they say, what? I'm good. All right, you're not good. You're not worth it. And you turned aside. Well, that's not flattering. It should be flattering in another more literal sense. It should lay you flat on your face in utter desperation, crying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then I want us to know this. It says he will save that is it. That is a future indicative active, which means he's going to do it. He is sure to do it. It is going to come about by his active hand and power. He saves, which I, would be helpful if we got that in our head. You know who doesn't save? Preachers. You know who doesn't save? Sinners, which includes preachers. You know, you, you, know, you know who doesn't save? Churches. You know what doesn't save? Rituals, rites, baptism, the Lord's Supper, pilgrimages. There is only one who saves, and it is Jesus Christ, who is God, who is the Son of God. He saves. Listen to just a few verses that press this home for us. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9 says this to Paul encouraging Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before ages began. Do you put all those things together? 
Oh my, who saved us? He saved us. Because nothing about you. Nothing in you. He saved us because of the grace he has given us in Christ Jesus before ages began. Goes on to state it with these strong words in Titus 3, 4 and following. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. <laughs> now that's, a, that's an amazing expression. You tell me if you can connect the right name to this. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Who is that? Well, it's going to be a little mixture and prepare us for part two, which is going to be briefer. Jesus, God saves, God with us. God, our Savior, appeared. The goodness and kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Look, what did it say in verse five? When he appeared, he saved us. Not by works of, done by us in righteousness. How come every time or with such frequency when the scriptures talk about God saving us, it's quick to remind you, you nothing. You did nothing. You earned nothing. You merited nothing. You contributed nothing. Ultimately, you were nothing. But he made you in Christ his people he adopted you into beloved he has made you a kingdom of priests indeed taken what is worthless and made us his treasured possession his peculiar people in Christ he saved us according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit how much of that did you do the washing of regeneration and renewing of the spirit. How much of that did the church do? That is all done by God. The washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It says verse 6. Whom he, God, poured out upon us through Christ, Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by grace, we would be heirs of eternal life. Now go with me, jumping forward. Says this, verse 23, quoting out of Isaiah 7, verse 14 and following, it says, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Amen? God with us is how it's translated. Now, back in chapter 7 of Isaiah, remember, it says, in verse 14, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. But then it says these other words. He shall eat curds and honey. Hmm. When he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. The land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. It's like what's happening? Right now, we've got these two oppressive kings, and a child is going to be born, and before he even reaches an age of seeming understanding, these kings lose their land. 
Boy, that sure sounds like something that's going to happen soon. And indeed it does in Matthew, in Isaiah chapter 8. It says this in verse 30, uh, verse 7. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them, against those kings, the water and the river, the mighty and the many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over its channels and go over all its banks. It will sweep into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even the neck. And its outspread wings, it will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Oh, that's what it says at the end of verse 8. O Emmanuel. Which would be what? We can see the power of God with us. We can see the might of God displayed among us. Indeed, it goes on to say this, still in Isaiah 8... Uh, verse 9, be broken, you peoples, and shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Now, just a hint. When the scripture repeats something, you ought to pay attention. It says, And it says here three times, you shattered. Gather together, get ready to fight. You shattered. Gather up, strap on your armor. You shattered. Strap on your armor. You're shattered. In other words, it don't matter what you do. You're done. You, you can get yourself ready. You can equip yourself. You're shattered. Just, and then it says, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word. It will not stand. For God is with us. In the Hebrew, for Oh, Emmanuel. But listen. So there was a sense in which God would bring judgment. He would show forth his might and his power. And he did that in the Old Testament. And it would be a testimony to them that God is with us in his power, in his working, in his might. But in the coming of his son, brothers and sisters, it comes to an absolute another level. What does it say? It's not simply God with us in display of his power, in show of his might. But the only God who is at the right hand is with us. The son of God, God, very God. With us. I mean, so much so. Remember this. John 1, 1. We know this well. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And so that's confusing. So are there multiple? No. The Word was God, singular. But the Word was with God. What? That's that revelation of that mystery to us that the scriptures speak again and that we baptize in the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I could simplify that and say you baptize in the name of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Goes on to say this of Jesus, uh, verse 14 of John 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son of the father, 
full of grace and truth. And the scriptures go on in so many places to remind us of him. Colossians 1, 20, 19 and 20 says, In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether in heaven and on earth. See to it, it says in Colossians 2, 8, and 9, no one takes you captive in all, uh, to all these philosophies and things of this world. Verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity bodily dwelt. We, we remember this. Um, nothing in this world was created apart from him. Remember, it says this in John 1, 2. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Which is one of those uh, little nuggets that, that slightly rubbed me the wrong way. It's common in so many churches uh, throughout the world, even today, uh, to recite the Apostles' Creed together in their services. Which, would, which begins like this, I believe in God the Father... Almighty creator of heaven and earth and the son Jesus you know so Jesus ultimately gets bypassed in creation and then the spirit he gets I mean it does say born of a virgin confession under Pontius Pilate and the spirit gets brief and honorable mention but God created the heavens and the earth father son and spirit together in this fullness of astounding mystery that leaves us humbled. I simply close by reminding you of these things. And two verses I want to read to you once again. It says this in Luke chapter 1, verse 31 and 32. Behold, he's speaking to Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Something laced into that, right? Everyone else who set up on a throne, how long did they reign? Very limited. But Christ will reign on the throne of David forever. <laughs> Philippians 2, 9 and through 11 says this. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. They're going to recognize. Everyone will recognize. God saves. And Jesus will stand there as the God who saves. And everyone falls down. Everyone who thought that they could somehow or their religion could save them will recognize what? He alone was the God who saves. And all of us who by grace are saved, will also recognize 
He alone is the God who saves. And everyone will fall before Jesus, the God who saves. No name above that name. And it says, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He is the Savior. He is God. He is God with us. He is God who saves us. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, I often feel when we consider these things that, that we know we don't feel them deeply enough. That they don't move us passionately enough. God, give us a sense, even as you gave Moses a glimpse of your glory by your spirit in the revelation of these verses. Give your people, oh God, a glimpse of the glory of God displayed in Christ Jesus, in the Son. Oh, what an amazing thing. That his name would be called Jesus, the God who saves. That he would be Emmanuel, God with us. And Lord, we thank you that even as you promised to Joshua, you would never leave him or forsake him. You, O oh God in Christ, have promised to us, you would never leave us or forsake us. Lord, we thank you that we have in Christ the great Eternal, unchanging salvation. Oh Lord, fill us with joy in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.